Hey, Gestalt Education Nation, uh, new sponsor alert, new sponsor alert. Today, we're excited to announce uh, Dynamic Disc Designs and Jerome Fryer. Uh, we have an awesome discount code for you. Just use the code Gestalt uh, to get a little bit of money off on the, the Dynamic Disc Designs. They're the, the most realistic anatomical discs that we've ever seen. If you caught our, our episode with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, you saw an entire shelf full of them. Everything from cavitation instruction to uh, di- uh, disc dysfunction to SI joint dysfunction, all sorts of amazing joint stuff. Joint movement, vertebral yes. movement. Absolutely. So uh, go to Dynamic Disc Designs, uh, use the code Gestalt. As always, you can use the code Gestalt on Core360 belt to get a, a little discount on the belts there. We love to use that for biofeedback, for teaching respiration, intra-abdominal pressure, and how the, the abdominal wall should be working during function. Uh, and then the last one, use the code Gestalt Education 10. Those will all be in the description in the podcast. Gestalt Education 10 at humanlocomotion.com uh, to get off uh, some money off of all of his awesome gadgets and tools and uh, rehab uh, materials. What's your favorite, Brett? He's got a trunk full, but I think, you know, integrating the Topro in, I think, has been a game changer for us here at the office. So I think that would be my pick. Beautiful. All right, guys, don't forget, use the code Gestalt, Gestalt Education 10. Uh, visit the show notes and you'll be uh, hooked up. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, today we are in Scottsdale, a uh, beautiful little office here uh, in beautiful Scottsdale, one of my favorite places on earth. I know you too, Brett. But uh, today we're sitting down with uh, with Andrew Hauser. So, Andrew, I've heard a ton about you from Brett, from other people, uh, from PJ, from Neil, like all these awesome people. But uh, you have a crazy story of your involvement in Major League Baseball, number one. You're out of it now. You're kind of on the other side. You can breathe. You're kind of treating patients on your own and these big-time athletes and stuff. But uh, you also have won a World Series with the Dodgers. You were uh, – it's, it's kind of an awesome story. We were on this before. I think I counted it six teams, seven teams? Uh, six, Five different, oh, yeah. five different major league teams, and, uh, and only thirty-eight years old. Yeah, I don't know, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's a badge of courage or not. <laughs> no, it's a good thing. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's pretty amazing uh, to to have longevity in that sport. Number one, not not only longevity, but longevity with multiple different teams and multiple different positions. You started out with a string coach, and then you've kind of worked your way up to you know with when you were at the Dodgers, you were the uh, head of rehab. Basically, would would be a decent title, I think. And uh, so so maybe well, I, I mean, just everybody's want, wants to know like how do you start working in major league baseball? Baseball. How do you work with these high-level athletes? Like, maybe just a quick intro. Like, some of your intangibles or the things you think that made you successful in that arena. Yeah, uh, it, it's actually funny how I even, man, this could be a long, long conversation. Um, so even how I got in because I was in college. So I went to the University of Kansas. Um, oh, I did not know that. I don't like oh. that. I went to the University of Missouri. So this, not, this did not start this is off a bad well. Start. This is really bad. Start. bad start. Rock shock, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good good year to be a Jayhawk, even football-wise, kind of, this yeah, year. That's right. sort of, kind of, sort kind of. of. Yeah. It's a little, yeah, that's fair. Um, they did win the Orange Bowl my last year there, for yeah. what it's worth. There so. you go. Had to be you. Yeah, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I went to University of Kansas, and honestly, it was after my, like, sophomore year. Well, number one, I really didn't even know what athletic training was. Like, I, so I was in a car accident. I started working with an athletic trainer that, um, man, she she treated me like an athlete again, which is what I wanted. Um, I just didn't feel like I was being pushed enough. And so I was like, oh, she told me that she was an athletic trainer. I just thought it was a strength coach. So, like, that started for me, like, that whole mindset of, like, man, it's just all one thing. Um, that was right out of the gate. And then I was trying to get 
internships. Like I interned with a chiropractor actually who did like all ART. That was after my sophomore year of college at Kansas. Um, and I was seeing the results he was getting. I was like, wow, that's way better than the ice and stem. I'm, <laughs> I've been seeing a lot of like, he's, he's getting, getting people better. Um, and I was just like, man, I know, like, I wasn't sure what pro sport I even wanted to be in. I grew up playing everything, but I mean, I was a higher level baseball player and I, my travel team coach growing up was actually the major league hitting coach at the time. And I just, I called him. I said, Hey man, like, I'm not asking to get a job, anything like that. Can you just pass my resume along? And that happened to be for the diamondbacks. Ken Crenshaw called me. PJ Mainville called me, was the medical coordinator. And like I, whenever I interviewed and, and they invited me out to, this was in Tucson, Arizona. And this is, this is met so many people through this. This is funny how it all comes full circle. Um, I was in Tucson, Arizona for the summer. Uh, that's, they'd have like their long-term rehab there. But you, you also, you got, you were hired then uh, as an intern. I was, oh, gotcha. I was interning. Yeah. yeah. So this is before my senior year at Kansas. So that whole summer I was in Tucson, uh, I'd intern with like long-term rehab in the mornings. And then, uh, when triple a was in town, I'd, I'd do that in the, at, in the evenings. And then at university of Arizona at the time, Neil was actually the basketball strength coach, Neil Ramp. Um, and I got connected through him. Like I was working like Gatorade camps. I don't <laughs> like, uh, and so got connected through a, a friend at Kansas to the guy that's like Neil's best friend. And so I met, yeah, I met Neil right then. And they were just in Arizona at that point. I was like, again, I was seeing the ART stuff, but like they were pushing like just way more. They, they weren't on the DNS train yet. That was the following year. I think that that started to gain traction for them. Um, same with PRI, but like they were pushing anatomy, anatomy trains. It's like, oh, this is yeah, really cool. Really and, cool. I, and yeah, I was just getting like, uh, I felt like I, just the fuse was lit uh, at that point. Like I was so pumped. Um, I was just seeing the integration of the staff and just how everybody was. It was the first time that I'd felt like in an athletic environment again. And I don't say that from a team perspective, but like you felt like you were on the team, like everybody was pushing each other to get better. And I'd never had that. I'd never felt that like uh, no disrespect. There were some great people at Kansas, but I never felt that like amongst a staff, like a sports medicine yeah, staff. staff. And it was, it was just different. I was like, okay, this is it. Um, <clears throat> so finished my senior year at Kansas. I actually was a strength coach with the Phillies. And then I've Great experience there, but I was like, ah, I'm still trying to figure out, like, I, I knew I wanted to be hands-on, I wanted to train people, and coming up in the minor leagues, like, you're either, you either need to be in the right system, or you probably need to be on the medical side, so I, that's when I went to Tampa, I'd worked my way up, and I was working in a PT clinic in the off-season, which is it's actually how I met my wife, and I started going really deep down the DNS rabbit hole at that point, because I would just, like, go to the, I'd go to courses, like, every weekend, uh, and then I'd go back and I mean, and I'd have like 45 minutes of patience. So I'd like just immerse myself in DNS and that definitely just made my learning curve way faster on that. And like, I was kind of dabbling in some PRI stuff, doing a lot of ART. Um, yeah. And then I went from there to, I was like, it was actually a mirror of Neil's position in Arizona at the time. It was called a manual performance coordinator in the minor leagues. So that's how Arizona had plucked me over 
Um, it's kind of like an assistant medical and an assistant strength coach, both. So you could just kind of hop in and out of both rooms. And then it was just go where the need is. So went to the medical coordinator. And then I went from there to Atlanta, where I became the director of player health and performance, which was, I mean, I there's so much I learned in Arizona. And then there was so much I learned in Atlanta that super stress like it was super stressful <laughs> but uh just like your phone is ringing non-stop i mean i was in, involved in everything but like i was really excited about getting to develop kind of my own vision personally but also just develop a team and then like pay forward what i'd gotten to learn in arizona from the people that mentored me and that was I remember we had a coffee at, uh, at Bush Stadium when you yeah. were with Atlanta. You were you were mapping out everything you had going on. I was like, man, he is he has got it going on. Yeah, it was. Yeah, man. Like I, I mean, <laughs> it was. It gave you an appreciation. Every year was different. Like that first year, or like getting there, it's first like, okay, you got to get some people on board, like because you're trying to change a, a culture. You're trying to integrate strength, medical psych like nutrition uh, so we're trying to save money on work comp yeah yeah things that people don't think and at that point it's like we were just a bad team in atlanta like we lost i think 99 games or something that first year like we had some guys that were kind of on their way out we had some young like up-and-comers our our gm at the time had made a lot of really good trades um for the long term um he, he has since been banned for life from, from baseball. <laughs> we'll that, that's no. that's another, another story. Um, but, uh, man, there's just so many, like, you just needed... <laughs> if I were to take one thing away from being in Atlanta, I mean, it was like, man, you go into a new situation, and you don't know until you don't know, but you just have to get good people around you. Like, you can build the skills, but get good people, hire on character, and, like, start... Uh, and, and you have to put start putting systems in place. Don't you think it's not just good? Pe- I mean, they got to be good at what they're doing, but they also have to be team players. You know, they have to be they have to know how to work well with others. So there's more than just being like a superstar clinician or trainer. There's also, you know, this other component of uh, being able to play well within a team. Yeah. Yeah. And the interview process, interestingly enough, became so important for us. Now, there's like the part of like you're always reaching out to people trying to, you know, like, um, kind of find draft and follows and like who could be good, good fits from maybe other clubs or other sports or from colleges, but figuring out like, Hey, what worked with the psych actually, um, quite a bit on this, um, who's the, I think the director of behavioral science for the Royals now. Um, but really to dial in our, our interview process to know like, Hey, these are the, the qualities we want to hire on. These are the things we as a department value, um, and then building out our interview process from there. And I'll say like, there were a couple of times where we went against what the interview said and like, we should have done, <laughs> we should have stuck with the There's process. There's a reason you interviewed yeah, people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, the, it was you're just trying to stack the deck really you're right. trying to change a culture like quickly which i do think like it takes time for sure and like i know ken crenshaw had always said like man if you have a five-year plan it's probably a seven-year plan hey, right. you know and like uh there's certain things that can be changed very quick quicker than i thought 
but it's it takes time for you know it to really like take hold and i think too i mean think of all the different levels of buy-in you have to get because you got to get buy-in with the you know the the team you got to get buy-in with the players you got to get buy-in from ownership and getting buy-in from those three components that is not easy you know no, for sure. And the staff that's already there. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the coaches. And, and there's things like since I've been other places like, man, I wish I would have done that different or I wish I would have done this different. Uh, but like the cool thing now is like you have people that you helped mentor now taking some of these head jobs that you can pass some of those things on to, which is still like, man, that's the biggest part of pro sports I like I miss right now is that mentorship piece with with the rest of the staff but I'm I am getting to do that in other in other ways but just being in that day-to-day of it is a, is a totally different ball game now you're uh, what we call a bandit the people on the outside yeah yeah but <laughs> you got to <laughs> man I'll I'll tell you what though it's um it has been it's been eye-opening because you start seeing the warts on both sides you know yeah. like what man like uh I was just I had my head in the sand on this or um, like there were things that frustrated you when you're in the team sport side, seeing like, you know, guys are going to go out. They, they're always out in the off season. I mean, very few of them live where, where the team's at. Um, but I mean, even some, and I think it's becoming more and more common in baseball. I mean, for sure in other sports where people are getting their own people um, and it's a slip, it can be a slippery slope for the people that are doing it. But it like, man, if you can if you can communicate with the team, it's ultimately up to the player. Uh, if you're if you're able to communicate with the team or not, like, and that that becomes that much more powerful, though, for sure. For the listeners, so the what the bandit act what the bandit actually means is that they're the people on the outside that are you know, treating the players. And when what's hard if you're on the inside, which I'm now on the outside, was on the inside myself. When you're on the inside it drives you nuts to have the bandits. But like you said, most people have their own team. The problem is like a lot of times for whatever their motives might be, the the player may not want the team to know that they're getting outside care, but then this creates this huge dilemma because there might be over treatment at some point they need the next medical service. So then, then everything gets exposed and then it becomes really, really challenging. But, uh, I think, yeah, I think that the trend is to have your, your private guy. And then what can be kind of frustrating is sometimes, you know, uh, if you're on the inside, sometimes you're looking at the outside thinking like this player's going outside, but inside the, you know, the treatment would probably be uh, better sometimes, not all the time, but you know, so I think those are all like difficult. I I think it's difficult when you're in, your ego definitely starts getting getting intertwined in it. Like looking back on it now, <laughs> you take like little I, subtle verbal. Yeah. That's what I used to do. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I I see it now as like part of it's like your ego is like, <laughs> hey, like there just may be something that person does that either you don't do or they just do it better. <laughs> and right. you just you just got to move on. Like that's okay, whatever. I you know what I will say now, and like I I don't know if I was listening to these cues enough when I was in, but like and this is the like the general population person and the pro athlete, people don't feel heard. And that just comes up by the medical establishment. And so whether that's the team medical establishment or that's the, you know, the general going to the, whatever their physician is. And I've heard that repeatedly over and over. It doesn't matter the sport, the player, the person, and it just keeps coming up. So there's definitely just a communication disconnect um, I don't think anybody's doing this maliciously, but 
there's a reason the player is not feeling heard. How much do you think it is to like just perceive value? So if you're working for the team, your services are given for free and there's like a psychology with that. So if they're paying a lot of money to see, you know, the athlete on the side, then they're automatically more bought in because they're paying for it. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's definitely, but you can, and the, this is the cool thing about being on the other side is like, you can then run kind of your a model more often than not when you're on the, in the private side of it, Oh, for man, sure. when you're in the, the team sport, like you might have an all-star walk in and tell you, Hey, I've got, 10 maybe 15 minutes go right <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah. it's like you're a clown and like make me laugh <laughs> that's or that's sometimes kind of like. don't you kind of feel a little bit a la carte at times meaning yeah. like the player kind of comes in and in that situation and they think they know what they want and then so you you actually kind of become a watered down version of yourself because you're not able to like do everything that you might yeah have and done if it was there's, it there's a lot of in it it's it was easy. It's actually easier in the minor leagues to run more like kind of your a offense. Um, just, you have younger players, you, uh, less people involved. Yeah. And there's, there's less, there's less politics involved in it in the minor leagues and you can just do a lot more. Um, the major leagues you have, you know, you've got a lot of big money people you've got, um, and like you've got like guys that like, they have to play every day. Like this is what it's about. Like when right. you're at that level, especially, I mean, postseason aside, there's just a lot more that goes into that. Um, and you have way less of their attention. <laughs> They're getting pulled in and they are, they're getting pulled in a lot of different directions. But to your point, like when, no matter how good you are, anytime you work for the team, you know, there's always the allure and especially with social media. Now it's even bigger. Like I watch guys all the time. They're just on social media. Most of the time, like sending stuff to uh, like their friends with other team or their teammates. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Oh, there's no secrets like, anymore. Okay. Yeah. I know you're cheating on me. I saw <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So Dodgers. So you, uh, yeah. So I, let's see, that's where we finished 2020. Well, 2018 was my last year in Atlanta. <clears throat> we went to the playoffs. That was my first time going to the playoffs, which was uh, that's my one of my favorite major league baseball moments because we had gone from 99 losses two years before, kind of surprised everybody, made the like the postseason. Um, I mean, we got bounced the first round, but by the Dodgers, ironically, <laughs> I jumped ship, went to LA. Um, I was a uh, director of performance rehab there um 19 it, it was cool going from the atmosphere actually in atlanta because atlanta we were like we were up and coming you kind of like you kind of were riding a hot streak in 18 it's like you didn't know how good you were yet sure. you you didn't really expect to win every day but you're just riding it out uh 19 you get to the dodgers they had just been to two of the last three world series um they just expect to win every day. And I was like, okay, this is a different environment. Um, it, and that was, I mean, that was cool. That was, that was refreshing. Um, let's see, we were, I mean, we won over a hundred games in 19 and then same thing. We got, we got bounced in the first round by, uh, that was the nationals that year. And they went on to win the world series. 2020 was an absolute whirlwind though. You're going in spring training. I mean, every year you think like, you're at least going to go to the World Series with in L.A., which is, again, that's just a cool, different mindset. Yeah. Um, spring training, man, I, I still remember 
<laughs> it's got all the players. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I remember one of the players coming in like, <laughs> "We're not playing today." Um, I, like we were just having like all these meetings, and then all of a sudden, just like everything stopped. Um, the pandemic happened, and then I mean, we started going back into the park probably early june but it was so like we could have one player come in at a time you'd like spray their feet down you take their temperature you do like there were all these processes uh it was it was well, that market is so crazy i remember when you guys had me out there I, I was blown away by just how many people were involved with like the dodgers yeah. versus like some of these small market teams like it almost felt the difference of like a professional team and like a high school team like yeah, yeah. and the dodgers just have so many like components to in people and you know it's got it's that's got to be like its own pressure in itself with all the people that are involved it's um there's just a lot just a lot more <laughs> of yeah. every like you name it there's a lot more of yeah. It. yeah um i will say like not nah, like they do a better job in la of like where they like they've obviously got a lot of money Okay. Um, they do a better job of anybody I've seen in pro baseball of their game planning and preparation. Like their performance science uh, department is unbelievable. And the things they're able to start breaking down and like just how they prepare for other teams. And, and I think that's why you see so many guys come from other teams and do well there um, is part of the preparation. But it's like the preparation of their own players too. Is so that like the money or the people they've got there or they can pay the people that they need to have there? <laughs> I mean, they have the resources to build the department up, okay. I think, better. And that's where I think everybody else is playing catch up. There's probably a couple of clubs that are close at this point. Uh -huh. But I like looking back at like where and Atlanta's built since since then. Um, but just look I mean we had like a staff of one where LA has a staff of like twenty. And it's like, oh my gosh. Um, but they and they that's what they do. They do a really good job of putting in like players in a position to be successful. Like, hey, if your slider is elite they're going to pitch to like your strength. You're going to work to your strengths. And I think they just do a really good, good job of that. Of uh, actually using the data instead of it just being useless information. Sounds yeah, like, yeah, yeah. which uh, that's, I, I think you see that less with some of the, <laughs> you, you see data being taken a lot. And this is kind of the sports science question. Right. This is a, a little bit separate. Um, I mean, that's still a complaint from players like, uh, Hey, like, why are they taking this KVEST data or why are they taking whatever? Like, I don't feel like I'm getting strategies to actually then put that in place or make that better. Mm -hmm. That comes up a lot. And, and that is honestly, and that's a two way street, man. The, the truths, if there's one thing I've learned over time, the truth's always somewhere in between uh, because the, the data is usually available to them. Maybe it's not being presented in a good way, um, but like the player may be difficult to work with in those situations too. Like yeah, we, so we the can't data can that. be harmful, right? Andrew, yeah. I mean, at yeah. times too. Oh you yeah, know. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and there's just not a lot of, it kind of goes back to that communication piece. There's not a lot of trust a lot of times where there's not a lot of data other than what's available in the stadium, or if there's a really good relationship with a coach, there's not a lot of data that can really be taken at the major league level. Right. It's, and that's, that's also the difference between like the major leagues and the minor leagues. Um, they can take a little bit more in some of the other sports, but still like you're, you're limited to really what the players and the players association is going to do. I think that's where all these companies 
that come out or the general population thinks like, oh, why aren't you doing this or this or that? Like, <laughs> players got to okay it. Right. <laughs> well, so let's uh, maybe switch into some integration. So you and I crossed paths early, real early in both of our careers through, uh, it wasn't even DNS at that time. It was just Pavel doing like a, a Sebastianized <laughs> reflex locomotion and, and literally just mesmerizing every room that he's in. He's got that ability to do that. And then uh, you, like all of us, I mean, you, you know, you started heavy in DNS and then, you know, you go down that path and then you've taken um, a deep dive into PRI. So let's maybe start there. Uh, Cause you know, a lot of people that are, especially in professional baseball, obviously I represent DNS baseball, but like Ben Hager and others who are big into the, you know, the PRI side of it. Um, we actually have a really good relationship. And I think like everybody thinks that it's so binary. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, what, what made you maybe leave DNS for a second, go down to PRI and like what, what's, or maybe that's not exactly the way to word it. Uh, but. I mean, that's a good question. Um, Cause you're right. They, people are looking at them like one's black, one's white. And like, that's, I, I don't think that could be further from the truth. Like they're saying, Neil would always say like, it's, they're saying they're speaking Spanish. They're just speaking different dialects. You know, mm -hmm. one may be that's from well Mexico, said. one may be from Spain. Um, and they real, for me, they filled gaps for one another that like questions I had maybe in one system where the other would answer and vice versa. Um, is I think the, the thing about DNS, like, and this is, this is development, <laughs> you know? And like, it's, uh, you start like that was, that was after ART DNS was foundational for me. And then like, it just, man, especially with the reflex locomotion, just oh, kind of like blew my it. mind. I was like, what am I seeing? Watching these people with CP walk around after whatever Pavel was doing at the time. Um, but then going to PRI and be like, okay, like there's some things like I didn't feel like I was, and some of it I probably just wasn't good enough at the time either, but like wasn't getting the results I wanted. Um, and I was seeing some other people get some like, speaking a different language for sure. A lot of acronyms. I was like, Oh my gosh, what, what is going on? But uh, for me, like it was just like immersing yourself in that system. And then the more you can immerse yourself in any system, the better you're going to learn it, but you're also going to learn the holes in it, which I think is the important thing yeah, exactly. too. Like you can't, and we were talking about this before we even turned, turned the start recording. Like <laughs> you can't, you can't continue to do these, just do one thing uh, in pro sports. Like you can't do it. Like there's, there's probably, man, five people in the world that can only use one system and be just better than everybody. Oh, you know, we've my, had Mike Leahy on our, and his take is, yeah, you can, that's, you know, you can do the approach, which I would recommend what you're saying, or you could say, well, I'm just going to be the best in this one modality. And then. You know, I mean, yeah. there's two ways, but I agree. I think you're more hireable if you have multiple. Yeah. And for somebody like, I mean, Mike's one of those five people. Yeah, you know, exactly. Mike, yeah. Pavel, probably like Ron Haruska, you know, like there's uh, Willem Kramer is, an, is another hands-on guy. Uh, there's, but even a lot of those, a lot of those individuals do learn other systems. I mean, Pavel is a great example. Like, uh -huh. I mean, he learned from Yanda, you know, he learned from Voita, he learned from Levitt. Like, so... Yes, you can call that one system, but that's multiple systems. What do you think? Since one. you've been around Pavel and uh, Ron, and I've been fortunate enough just shared weekends over like state conventions with Ron too. So mm -hmm. I've, I've heard him speak and, and vice versa. And um, I think that 
they they do have some similarities. I feel like both of them are almost like artists in the way that they're they're viewing the patient. They are never really paying that much attention to what the actual pain syndrome is. You can always tell like what they're currently yeah. into at that moment because that's what they want to talk about. Yeah. Um, what what are some other similarities or differences you've noticed between uh, Pavel and Ron Ruska? Uh, well, I appreciate you saying that. Like, cause, and, and I I see that with like the Postural Restoration Institute right now. Like, you're seeing some of the tertiary courses come up, and like that's clearly where Ron's like interests are, sure. um, and it's like. The cool thing, and this is where I think there's a huge similarity between the two. Well, number one, like they can respect other systems and they can talk deeply into like, even if they don't know your system, like they can have a conversation about it just right. because their knowledge of is far beyond a lot of what ours is ever going to be in a lot of different areas. Um, I mean, they're so like, both of them are so neurologically minded um, on a number of things and they're thinking more steps ahead than uh -huh. they're like, that's something I always tried to pride myself in. I was like, man, I'm trying to think whatever, so many steps ahead and think about all these different things. Like they're, if I'm thinking five steps ahead, they're 50. <laughs> so. I think too that, uh, like, like if I hear Ron talk, I don't necessarily go back into my office and say, oh, I've got to go no more PRI. However, in my world, it makes me think differently about DNS, which makes me a better clinician. So I think like sometimes it may not like set you down a path of, you know, trying to be the next Ron Rusa, but it, it makes you better in the current system that you're that you're in. It, it's made me think a lot of, about a lot of other systems right. and how those are actually like, oh, man, that's like a piece I haven't thought about. Like thinking, we'll just say Gary Gray's work or something yeah. or like they talk or even like Franz Bosch, if you start talking about that stuff, like and that's where they are all saying a lot of same things. And everybody gets super fired up when when you say like oh i'm a whatever guy like yeah. like who cares like just get results at the end of yeah. the day but like uh, it's they are saying a lot of the same things and like there could be some some differences here and there they're just using different vernacular um but it becomes like a religious conversation or a political conversation oh, for people it's, for sure. it's unbelievable and, like, and sometimes it helps you sometimes it hates you. like you know like for me uh i try to pride myself on not having that many enemies but like because I'm kind of known as a DNS guy, like automatically, like you can walk into a room and you can tell like who's already, you know, ready to, to start a fight with you. But yeah. Um, but I mean, just on, on those two guys, like again, they're, they're like spoon feeding people to ultimately get them to where they can talk about what they want. Right. Like that's how I think Pavel and Ron are both that way. Like you look at DNS a like, that's so like beyond what, you know, Pavel wants to talk about. Right. Um, but the irony is they do like those, like whatever they're taking from that system is so foundational and they're going back to these foundational things. They're just having to explain it to you in such a dumbed down like <laughs> way. Right. But they're, they're using them. They're using those same thing, those same exercises, whatever, but it's for like such a higher level purpose than than we can fathom most right. of the time and that's what i've seen more and more um man, i think anybody that's super elite does foundational things so well it's just like you don't really under fully understand why you're doing them when you're first starting out or you're getting into a system and then like 
they've got like just so much, uh, any elite, elite person just had, there's so much depth behind the reason. I mean, even like you look at Vern Gambetta, uh-huh. like it's like the OG of strength coaches yeah, in the yeah, baseball yeah. world. But there was like set, like he had these like leg circuits or these med ball circuits. There was like, there's, there still is so much genius behind the simplicity of what he was doing. And that's what Einstein would always talk about, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Brilliance is in simplicity yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. And that's what all these elite people are doing. We just can't fully appreciate just how much depth there is behind it when we're, when we're beginning and diving. So tell us a little bit. Um, I know you took a deep dive into the fascial distortion, which we've, we've had zero representation on our podcast in that. So what made you look at that? What are the the key points from there that you took away? And so, well, you need to get Casey Hummel. Okay. So, so Casey is, he's a chiropractor in Wichita and he's, he's the guy that really the driving force behind it. Um, the original DO that started, it's been passed away for a number of years. Um, but FDM is, it just gives you such a great framework and it's going off a lot of subconscious cues. That's what really drew me. Like it's simple, number one, but that it's not saying like, Hey, you can't use DNS. You can't use ART. You can't like, it's not smart. It's yeah, yeah. It's far, far from that. Um, it's really just giving you a framework of like, Hey, when you should maybe use these tools. Uh Um, and it's going off like of a, whatever their body language is, whatever they're showing you, that's really where it's starting to drive you towards like, Hey, this is, this is really, this would be a good tool to use here. Right. Um, and then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll find new things will kind of come up as you go along. Um, but I still like, uh, yeah, I definitely use that again. Just, it's a framework approach. And then the skill itself, like there's a couple things that they do different. Um, cause, but again, like needling cupping the fascial manipulation air they all fit into this system right Um, or if you just do like basic trigger point stuff like it'll all feet like it'll all work into the system let me ask this what was uh what is the void that fascial distortion model is filling that the other techniques weren't for you like what is the yeah. Do you um, know there's like crossover where yeah. it's kind of, we're all kind of treating yeah. the same thing, but then you run into certain things like fashion manipulation is a good example where like, you, or neurodynamics is a great example of that like if you don't have that tool, yeah. then you're going to run into a patient today that you can't help. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think it, for me, again, there were a couple things that I was never like, I was never thinking about with some of the different approaches, like just a couple of their specific techniques, um, some stuff right off the bone or some stuff more of length of a muscle tissue uh, or fascial tissue. And it was starting to expand and adding loaded movement and unloaded movement into into a lot of things um, where the other systems weren't fully capturing it. Uh-huh. Um Again, like I think all these is like, again, I use, we were talking before, like I use a lot of fascial manipulation, like the stucco work. Um, and I still do a, a good amount of ART, but, or in functional range release, um, like all these systems should be complementing each other. <laughs> that's that's what makes this so fun. And it? yeah. it's like yeah. a puzzle sort of. Yeah. Exactly. So if we, yeah, if you look at stucco's work, which we were introduced to, to him recently in the last uh, year or so. Uh, the technique is so powerful. 
uh, we've, I wouldn't say struggled, but our challenge has been, you know, to see the assessment is definitely different than the way that we're typically used to looking at things. So like we are and we're hosting in, in March and at our office again. So we're excited to like, look at it again, revisit it. And, uh, yeah. So what, what do you think about, uh, the whole, the deep dive that you yeah. took in the, uh, Stecco's work? So I, I, f- I use that every day for sure. Um, mm-hmm. and it's kind con- like, Interestingly, like what really drove me to it was PRI, which PRI doesn't push manual techniques, but the thought process, because the, the level one is all broken down into planes of movement. And I was like, okay, there's something there. Yeah. And then like the level two stuff is all very like rotational. Um, and I was like, man, it's like joint by joint approach. Or you, if you start looking into deeper into like the voyeur work, um, they're always talking about like limniscats or like figure eight movements. Helical tissue. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, man, like this is all like, again, they're all saying the same things. And then it's just figuring out how to how to treat it. So I personally do the assessment different than they do because I've essentially taken my like my own. It's kind of like a it's a number of different things, but uh, it's probably more it's more general like range of motion and like it's probably more pri based and if i need to break things down further um i do uh but just my down and dirty assessment and that tells me a ton off the stucco work of like okay like i know i'm gonna have to attack somewhere in this area they're gonna talk about balancing things out more often than not um and if you do i mean i i'd used it daily in the pro sports world too and that's where again i they're going to treat, you know, once, twice a week. And like, just, you feel like you're crushing somebody right. more often than not. They get good results. It's just super aggressive technique. That's, you obviously can't crush somebody if they have to perform that night. Um, so I was always very cognizant of like, Hey man, I'm going to spend, if they're playing that day, I'm going to spend 10, 15 minutes. I'm going to get in, I'm going to get out, but I'll be able to have like a summation effect of like being able to hit multiple things and being able to get the inputs I want every day. Right. Um, so I, I used it every day during the season. Um, and then if I had longer, like if a starting pitcher is day after a start or is day two, then I was going to, then I could spend longer with it and not, not worry so much. Um, but man, I mean, and do you find yourself using more of like the ways that you were taught to implement the treatment with elbows and stuff like that? Are you doing more, uh, I mean, are you bought into the assessment 100% or are you kind of shortcutting that in, in your world? I've shortcutted that big time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you kind of have to, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and again, like if this is somebody like in season, I'm looking at a lot of rotational things. I'm going a lot off palpation and movement with palpation at the same time. Um, so I'm looking where these different lines of pull are happening through my palpation. And that will generally drive me. And I'm starting... I'll generally go like distal to proximal. So like I'm looking from the hand. So I actually will start like the wrist, let's say for a throwing athlete. I'll, I'll figure out where I want to go. And then I'll, I'll look like, okay, when I hit this spot uh, and like, I want to confirm it with them first. I, I don't like leading, leading the patient or client. Um, I'm feeling with my other hand, like, Hey, where's this pull happening? So like if I'm treating uh, center of fusion, for example, like on my hand, like I'm here, my other hand's going to be up here and moving around the hand feeling like, okay, where's that distal line of pull? And then I'll do the same thing proximal and it'll start driving my 
um, my lemniscat or my, you know, my spiral line or wh whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, uh, do the same thing with the lower body. Um, so yeah, I've definitely like, I'm trying to figure out with my assessment, what's, what's just off, <laughs> you know, like right. number one, if this just isn't, isn't just a cleanup, something's going on. Like what doesn't add up with like the trends I'm usually going to see. Um, and, and I mean, I'm going to dive deeper. I'm going to do some spirometric testing. I'm going to do some, I'll, in some cases, I'll look at capnometer and try getting CO2 levels on people. Uh, I'll do foot testing, foot strength testing. Shout um, out to our boy, Tom. Yeah. 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 So, you know, now that we kind of know like what your playbook is a little bit, and I, I know we're missing some things, but we got the gist here. I want to ask you, cause I I'm in the world too, where people ask me a lot of questions. I know you get it too. And I'm sure you've thought long and hard about this. Within the last five years, there's been a lot of people like wondering, like in all the techniques we just mentioned, what do we have to offer for vision, vision rehab and things like that? And I felt like myself, like I've been exposed to a lot and I kind of like, I'm like, oh, I can kind of theorize that. Then when I try to work with it, I'm like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. Where are you on that? What do you, what do you think's actually changing the way the muscles are using the eye? Is that possible? Is it as simple just strengthening the eyes through these semantic computer programs, or is it like what, what's your uh, take? And I think it's way, I think it's way deeper than that. Um, I I took a really deep dive in this space about a decade ago, um, and was just trying to figure out like, okay, I'm not going to send everybody away to get like special glasses or do like different things, and trying to figure out like. What and what's my testing telling me? Like, what kind of trends am I seeing with that? Right. Uh, cervical lateral flexion tells me a ton on their their visual field and just trunk rotation uh -huh. in general. Um, but I I spend a lot of time of like, okay, can't number one, can they disassociate disassociate their eyes from their actual like skull? Yeah, right. Um, two, like, how's their depth perception? So like, can they appreciate the fact that like, Hey, I see a doorstop behind you, um, when moving back and forth, I've seen that like change orthopedic testing, just those two things I've right. seen change orthopedic testing a lot. Um, and then appreciating peripheral space and understanding like your eyes have to reciprocate and alternate. Um, and that you can open up some crazy amounts of trunk rotation when you start getting that. And, and I think it's just changing how you're like, it's not all about acuity. Like I always ask about eyes, like in, in just my first talk with somebody, like, like, do you have a prescription? Have you had LASIK? Have you like contacts testing people with and without contacts or glasses on, um, is always really interesting and covering an eye. Uh, like you start seeing some crazy changes and like, uh, just overall, like what you would consider basic orthopedic testing and range of motion stuff, like just by covering one eye. Cause multi-sensory integration is, you know, by definition, it's how you're integrating your vision with your smell, with your hearing, yeah. with your taste, with your vestibular system. And I think people miss that. You know, you think like you're pulling out like a, a Snellen chart to see like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like sports is about like how to integrate that. And I think like, that's like on the forefront of where sports medicine is probably going, like being in a, we're definitely like trying to work on that in DNS of how do we actually even outside DNS start to work on better multi-sensory integration? Like how, what does that actually look like when you're training an athlete? Yeah. I mean, think how much of your sensory information you just take into your eyes. And if you're a pro athlete, like, Take that, take that yeah. so much further. Like, Hey, you've got 40 plus thousand people in the stands. You've got 
and this is like, are you on a baseball field? Are you on a football field? Like, are you trying to avoid getting hit? Like there are so many, and that's just like, that's just a small piece of the vision. Like your sensory, your ability to feel the floor is really feeding your eye information. You know, like, I, I think know. about what wide receivers yes. have to do. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, like their ability to like actually sense the ground and like get, getting to like, I love watching sideline catches, like absolutely love it to see like, man, that that's where you want to see the biggest difference. I'm sure closing speed too, but in the NFL and college, like an ability for a wideout to get two feet in and some of the catches they make is, is and there's never the same situation twice. That's what's so unique about like that, that scenario in sports. Um, so what, uh, so I, I've never actually talked about this cause I really don't have a way to teach it. So I hate to, to even bring it up. But for me, the most powerful tool I feel like in changing vision is reflex locomotion. And the reason I think that is because I feel like the, the muscles around the eye, they will compensate and they will adapt so well. So then like any training to improve eye function, I think like at times is just maybe they're better, but they're better because you've just made them able to adapt and compensate better, which maybe makes them better. Whereas I feel like reflex locomotion may be the only modality that actually changes how the brain is coordinating the different muscles around the eye. And I know you've been exposed to reflex locomotion. So so I have not personally used it enough to like where I would, like when I was using it, like everybody, (laughs) like I wasn't, focused enough i don't feel like on the visual system at that point um like now for me like i'm i stand in specific parts of the room when i'm working with somebody to affect their visual system so there's like different things i'm trying to like subtly do um to where we're impacting this or like how i'm setting them up like i want the room to appear larger on one side than the other um because like to me like okay we're starting to create a new adaptation um and then their their system has to start figuring that out to your point though like man the neurological change that you can have and like especially as you start using it more and more with somebody with dns and like reflex locomotion are they teaching reflex locomotion still no we had to cut it out Uh, i I thought yeah You know, it was just too much. I mean, you do a, you know, you have a four day weekend and then three hours you tease people with reflex locomotion and you know, reflex locomotion is the hardest thing you'll ever try to learn in your life, you know? And, uh, so you can't do it. So you're like, it just wasn't the place for it. And then reflex locomotion that is its own thing. Yeah. So there's a copyright issue there. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's that it may be that one area where it really could potentially shine. Now in your environment, I was in the same environment. Like you have to have the right setting to be able to, to do it in a, in a professional sports locker room or training room. I mean, that is not the place because when I was trying to implement it in my setting, like players are walking in and they don't have great attention spans either. I, I got a story of somebody I was doing reflex creeping with. He asked if he could um, uh, watch his phone through like the the oh, hole in the table. I'm like, right. dude, no, like there, there's no way. But I think like the environment, it can be. There honestly a lot. I've taken a lot of things from like digging into autistic therapies because and i'm not saying like professional athletes are autistic but it's like they're so overly sensitized in certain areas and like their ability to focus on other things sometimes like 
therapy is like the last thing they want to focus on. Um, so, so it is, it's like you, you got to figure out some different sensory inputs. No, you see hints of that. Cause if you're working with like an autistic child, like if they're autistic, you know, and they're eight years old, give them 10 years and you'll see raging, raging, rigid, obsessive compulsiveness. Yeah. And you, you, you know, everybody who's successful in the world has hints of obsessive (laughs) compulsiveness. So I think like you see that in that world because of, you know, you, you gotta be a little bit different to be the best in the world at what you're yeah. you're doing. You'd be wired a little bit differently. So here's where, and, and I want to talk about reflex locomotion here because the first, like two things always like change like right away, especially as people are starting to do it more, like experience it more, you know, their tongue starts watering, mm-hmm. their breathing changes. And this is not belly breathing. Like, you, and you don't know it until you see it. It's like, man, that's like... <laughs> In like their pelvis. And they don't know anything's changing. No. So like you're having this, you're giving God high fives in your mind and they don't think anything's happening. And like they get up, they don't realize what happened. And you're, yeah, you're having a little party with yourself thinking you're. <laughs> but, and and like, maybe this is me trying to connect too many dots, but you think about that and you're, you're talking about the visual system. Like our, we talk about our eyes alternating and, you know, like they expand, they contract, like that's run really, but like our breath is tied into that. <laughs> like that, like we cannot forget that. Like our tidal vault, you're going to exhale fully when you appreciate your, uh, your peripheral vision, you're going to start to inhale as you start to focus on something and like all that's, systems. yeah, that's your sympathetic. That's your parasympathetic system. Like they're all operating at that point. And if you can't do, do that well on both sides, can you, ever fully exhale can you ever can you fill different parts of your thorax with breath can you get that true like deep pelvic breath mm-hmm. i i don't think you if you can't shut that down you i don't think you can and like i mean man i've been doing a lot more with dns really uh as i've gotten deeper and deeper into some like like resisted breathing work breath work um and just starting to break down like hey is this truly now a pelt like can we support the pelvis and increase your ability to dome tube diaphragms um have we gone too far that like are they just so overly stimulated now like we're talking about like tongue issue we're talking about a trachea issue we're talking about like how many pictures can you think of that get super anxious and they have a lot of acid reflux like that's a big majority of pictures. Yeah, that's true. And you think like, what's like, you've got increased dead space of your trachea. That's going to pull, like, that's going to pull more tone and tension through like your diaphragm, your lungs. That's going to create more tension into your esophagus. That leads right on top of your thoracic spine. So we can do all the thoracic spine, like rotation work we want. But if we can't get that part of our system to relax... So how are we going to rotate? Does that mean then like when you say you are working with a new patient today, do you start literally with every single person that you're working with, with respiration? Like, are you, is it that important to you or depends on the case or like how, where do you prioritize it It, with your assessment? It depends on the case for sure. Like I'm going to assess it with everybody. Um, it, It will depend on the person. Uh, and like, Hey, like, what are you here for? Like, I, I have, like, you have to feed them what they're there for in the first place. Uh, I want I, you to rub on me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. I'm for, here for the ART. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's important for everybody. And I think it's like one of the most missed pieces, uh, in, in everything we do. Cause like going back to DNS, like, man, 
that's the first thing that changes. Right. The very first thing. So like, why are we not like doing anything with that? Uh-huh. And, and a lot of it, like, you know, like we'll say Wim Hof, like I appreciate what Wim Hof has done because it's brought attention to the breath. There's a lot of people like breath's kind of a sexier thing right now, but how are we actually training it for performance and to make like quantifiable and subjective change? Um, like, man, we should like, if I can increase how much air I can move, uh, in, in the course of a minute, like, Hey, that'll change your VO two max quicker than anything else you're going to train over the next year. Um, if I can, if I can relax my diaphragm quicker, like that's going to make me more powerful, like on the field, like that's the name, like what did Barry Sanders do better than anybody? Like, yeah, he could stop and start cause he can relax so much quicker than everybody else. Like, why wouldn't we start with the diaphragm being able to do that? Right. Um, and just being able to coordinate things in general, like, can we coordinate our breath for a longer amount of time? Like that's going to build our aerobic system bigger. That's going to build like your resting heart rate will drop, but your ability to like utilize and deliver air and oxygen, man, that's, that's like performance at the end of the day. And like thinking about pitching, like what's the first thing you see, you go into a tight game. The first thing you see a guy get on the mound, like it's always a deep breath. Always. But like, man, as soon as like when people start to fatigue, that's when they lose their breath. So if we can control one, can we delay, you know, the other? I think too, one thing Taylor and I have talked a lot about, and I, I mean, I talk a lot about in DNS is, the person doesn't exist who is um, not good at respiration, but is great at generating what we teach at DNS, which is intra-abdominal pressure. So it's almost like being good at respiration and strengthening everything that you're talking about is also really, really helpful in the next days when we actually talk about the postural function of the diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah, you get, I mean, and that's research is very clear. Like you get way more like transverse abdominis, you get way more pelvic floor, you get way more internal oblique uh, response or activation, whatever we want to call it, like from uh, forced exhalation Mm. and from like, that's more tidal volume. The more tidal volume you have, the more you have to squeeze to get your air out and like, that'll, that'll kick it on. You want to dome vote like your pelvic diaphragm, like, man, that's, that's how you start to do it. And like, I don't, have you ever taken any of, um, they do a really good job. Thomas Myers, uh, cadaver dissections. They'll do I've them. just seen them on YouTube. I've never yeah. taken the course. No, really, really cool. But they have a breathing one and I hadn't thought about it until this moment, but like you see the, how the lungs actually will inflate around the pericardial sac. But if you're never really getting that full exhalation, like they're never going to fully surround that pericardial sac. It's like your air needs to go posteriorly at some point. And if it's not fully, if, if you're just shutting the door halfway, it's never, never going to fully do that. Think about like the, I mean, just the adaptation that's going to start to occur. I mean, those are the posture, the open scissors that Pavel would talk about, or like an internal rotation deficit in a shoulder. Like that's going to continue to build a certain like chamber of your heart more and more. It's going to hypertrophy your ventricle. I think too, I mean, I always like after we've, you know, taught proper respiration, then I have them go back and I just have them even look at the joint system, for example. So if someone starts to, you know, respire in the correct way and they're laying on their belly, 
Then you start to see every time you inspire, you see counter-nutation of the sacrum, you let the air out, you see nutation, you see movement in the costa transverse joints, the costa vertebral joints, like all these joints get naturally mobilized with good respiration. And we're so used to thinking of it just from like a a breathing standpoint and like an overutilization of, you know, the scalings or whatever you might say, but, but it's so much more complicated than that. And so much more involved in a, in a good way. So that's one of the things that really started to drive me towards it. So there's this group down in Austin, Texas that, um, that evolve, uh, a guy named, by the way, Andrew Hauser has a Rolodex. Like you would, this guy is, so, you're a, we were talking last night connector, with yeah. PJ and Neil about uh, connectors. Yeah, that's you. Go ahead though. Well, so Aaron Davis, Pat Estes, uh, Brian Kozak, Brian, like he's like the breathing guy for sure. He, he mentored me a ton over like the last five years or so. Okay. He's in Austin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, big hockey guy. He was. And he was mentored by, I think, Yoda, a guy named Jörg Feldman. If you could ever get Jörg Feldman on the podcast, you're doing something. I, I don't know if it's possible. That sounds like a I challenge. Think he's, I think he's on Dagobah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, the, the whole that point. That was a great Star Wars reference. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, like, full exhalation, no, well, it'll inhibit your intercostals. But I think more important, and this is why I st- started looking at capnometers and whatnot, and like you've been hanging out with Todd too much, like <laughs> gadget guy over here, right? Uh, but like CO two levels have to be higher. Like CO two is a vasodilator and and nitric oxide. Uh-huh. Like so, if somebody's got a lot of tension and tone. And we, and we can all think of like these clients or these athletes we work with that, man, they have a straight leg raise of like 45 degrees. Like they're just all tone all the time. Like you want to look at a capnometer on that person. That's going to be a really low, like resting CO2 level. You can drive that CO2 level up and you can do this in a number of different ways. Like many roads lead to Rome and you can quiet down, like you'll quiet down their nervous system and you'll get like a vasodilation response, soften their tissue. And that'll give you a window to like make a change. Cause those are the people that don't change no matter how much manual work you do with them. I don't care what technique. Yeah. And they come uh, back to yeah, DNS like does really good work with those people, but it's all like, there's a huge respiratory component with those individuals, but that's, I started using a lot of passive blood flow restriction or dry sauna. Like, again, there's a lot of different ways you can go about it and like meeting the person where they're at but if you can get that person i think hypercapnic you can do hypoxia i'd go intermittent this is generally what i'll do with athletes that like maybe they don't want to breathe on a bag for a long time or something uh, but you can drive that co2 level up and that's going to give you a window to make change it's a free anti-inflammatory like better than we're going to do right otherwise so I, there's there's a ton of low hanging fruit in that area, and it's just like starting to understand the physiology a little better, and figuring out like okay, what if my intent is to make this change, how can I make that change? Again, that's blood flow restriction. I can do that. Or I think whatever. Too, I, mean, I spend half of my life teaching manipulation courses in in the chiropractic world, and the one message that I try to convey to like an aspiring chiropractor or even. Uh, uh, doctors of chiropractic is, you know, one of the more common joint blockages on the body is the thoracolumbar junction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have joint blockage there, you're not using the muscles correctly in your thoracolumbar junction, which we see literally like 
epidemically across the board. I think too, like even if we're looking at the musculoskeletal system, we're you know if you're in the world of manipulation, you know you're you get good at joint plane. You're like God, I feel like I'm manipulating everyone's thoracolumbar junction. But then if we go like back to the actual like etiology or cause, we're back to everything that you were just speaking of and how important even like proper respiration, the generation of intra-abdominal pressure from a stabilization standpoint is actually for maintenance of normal soft tissue tone. I mean, we talk about the spine, but my God, throughout the whole body, especially if you look at Tom Meyer's dissections, I mean, literally we are connected from our plantar fascia to our occipital frontalis. I mean, just through, you know, fascia linkages as everybody's going to know, but I mean, it's easy to forget about that though. Like the, how interconnected the body is. I mean, you, I started using, uh, this is probably about five years ago too, Moxie monitors around this time, which are like muscle oxygen sensors. And that opened my eyes to a lot of this I stuff. I think Tom's, Tom's into that too. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that was one of our connecting moments, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tom and I. Uh, but like, man, uh, you just start seeing like air is running the show and that delicate balance that we have. Again, like, man, if I go out and squat right now, like I need to utilize oxygen. And then when I recover, I need to re-deliver oxygen. If I can't do those just like basic things, then I'm going to be a mess. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the reality or like that's when you start seeing, let's say, a pitcher that can't find the strike zone. Like, all right, it's time time to take him out. That's when you see we've all seen it. like 400 meter runners are great examples of this because you just see like they get to a certain point and they can't like it looks awful. Yeah. Right. They're but they're like yeah. they're still better athletes than any of us, you know. Right. They're still they're still going to have a good time, but you see their coordination break down when that happens like that delivery and that utilization of oxygen is like that's it's over, you know, like that that balance is over. Like they're just trying to survive right. at that point. There's so much tension that gets caught created in the system at that point, which again, you need to be able to perform with all that tension, but you also need to be able to figure out how to release all that tension. So vision is, you know, that was one of the things I want to ask you about. And then obviously with, um, with PRI, there's a lot of like dental talk and, you know, what are you, what's your current take on that? Are you, yeah, I mean, it's been fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, it, even in my career, which has been a 20 year career, it's kind of ebbed and flow in what people thought. You know, yeah. you have your true functionalists that are like, you know, you just need to restore function in that area and everything's fine. Um, and then you have these other people that, you know, are using aggressive orthodontics or headgears and things like that and, or mouthpieces. And where do you sit with, with all that? So I, I do think there there's definitely, I see a number of dental patients actually. Uh-huh. Um, and that's just kind of by happenstance. Um, there are, there are certain things I think are certain appliances are great. So whether that's going to start expanding their palate, what, um, to increase their nasal airway passages, I think that's a, a big thing. Um, or just to help them find their bite again. But it's one of the things I check on a lot of people is like, okay, again, if you've, you're super toned up in, in certain areas, talked about disassociating eyes but like your jaw should be able to uh function apart from the rest of your skull as well Um, it's a big part of your neck so there's a neck limitation which i would say in the majority of pitchers Uh (laughs) or professional athletes there is a neck limitation um like it's something i always look at it's just one of those things of like okay like 
how far do I do I yeah. really want to go down? And this? you know, and do you? Yeah, exactly. Or do, where do you start that? Yeah, you know, like yeah. I mean, because sometimes that could be the key thing in a case, but then also like it's not it everybody. Not be, though. You know, yeah, like, yeah. So you may just be looking at uh, some noise. Some noise. I, yeah, yeah, I try to walk that fine line of like, okay, like uh, that's probably important, but let me see how. Like that's not my like biggest strength. Sure. I can do some things in that space, but like, let me see what I can change underneath that using what, your other tools. And, yeah. yeah. What I do oftentimes is like, if I'm going to go like really be thinking outside of the box, then I use my audits, whether that's trigger points, joint blockage, tension and tone. So you may do an intervention in the jaw and then come back and check that. Is that kind of what you're doing or using more of the patient's symptoms to? Yeah. Guide so that? I'll, um, Especially, man, I, good story. I got to tell this for a minute because it's on it's on the visual system. It's on the dental system. Uh, we had an athlete in the playoffs. This was 2021. We're in the division series. And we had an athlete. He'd never had uh, vertigo before. Shows up with vertigo. And he's like an important like relief pitcher for us. Like, oh, my gosh. So we're just trying everything we can. We're just throwing the, the kitchen sink at him at this point. I mean, not trying to like over overdo it Uh, Um, but i can tell you the thing that made one of the biggest changes and this is going to sound funny but like took a popsicle stick put it back on his it was his left side and so he could like it's essentially it's like putting a board underneath your foot it's bringing the ground up to your foot so we were essentially bringing his bite up to his molars um, so he could ground himself like through his molars actually Uh, i will not say he was not perfect by any means uh, but that was that allowed him to actually pitch that night, and like he threw up, so like it was it was bad, right? Uh, and, and when he'd take that out, like it'd take a minute, but he'd start getting dizzy again, um, and like so, <laughs> there are certain instances to your point where it's like this is a big part of it, um, and you start to notice too, just people's like the shapes of their face, you start to get a pretty good idea of. Of uh, like if they're a potential dental person, right. if you have a more narrow face, you're probably going to have a higher palate. There's going to be. I always ask about like permanent dental things they have going on. Um, there's a lot of athletes get their teeth uh, get veneers now too, sure. which is a whole whole other thing. Yeah, oh yeah. It's like and we've got asymmetrical faces too, but now you've got these perfect symmetrical teeth. Right. Like something's <laughs> <Yeah>. not right. <laughs> God, your uh, teeth are pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Way too damn white, and yeah, the rest is kind of history there. Well, so I mean, I know because you've had these like director roles, and um, I mean, we've I have been absolutely enamored. The one thing that people don't realize about me is like, it, give me free time, and I'm studying functional medicine. Like, I'm just so intrigued. I just think it's like the future of everything. Basically, have you dabbled into the functional medicine world, or I? I mean, I have I have looked a fair amount into it. Um, I have not thrown myself all in. Honestly, like the, the biggest like route I've been, I'm about to start doing some work with a myofunctional therapist, which I'm, I'm looking forward to because really starting to dive into, dive into like tongue function um, and the torsion like that might, like we're talking about the trachea, but like what kind of effect is that having on our whole system? Uh, um, and man, just really deep into physiology in general. And like, it's, I mean, it's so impactful. I mean, it's, I've measured so many different things, 
Um, like, man, there was a season I was mad. I'd go on flights. I mean, you're flying all the time during baseball season. I'd have like a moxie monitor on. I'd have a glucose monitor on. I'm Everyone on, else I'm is playing yeah, cards. Yeah. And you're back there doing that. I'm like omega waving and like uh, checking my CO2 levels. Like, uh, it's <laughs> human guinea pig. Probably yeah. a little out of control, but yeah, I'm always gonna guinea pig myself. But it starts to definitely open your eyes to some different things. And then, okay, well, more importantly than these things are happening, like, how can I change those things? Yeah, <laughs> so, right, right. Uh, again, like, don't just take data to, to get data and sit on it. Like, yeah. let's make some changes. Yeah, actually make some changes. Beautiful. Just like that, we went an hour. So we covered everything, I breath to uh, assessments to basically baseball. I thought it was perfect. Um, thank you for sitting down with us, number one. Thanks for your contributions to uh, to integration. I mean, I think that is this is a, a perfect example of integration, and uh, can't wait to go back and listen to it. So give us uh, not to put you on the spot. Give us it doesn't have to be a clinical book. Give us one or two books that have changed your life. Oh, that's a it's a really deep question, a really good question. Um, this will be one you haven't heard before. There's a book about George Marshall, who was the um, well, he was the chief of army chief of staff in World War II, and like he was like the architect of all like the really putting like Eisenhower in place, MacArthur, Patton, like putting all these guys in place. And so like that book was. I absolutely love that book because it's like, man, this guy, nobody's hardly heard. They've heard about like the Marshall plan, but nobody's really heard about like this guy. Okay. And like, it's a newer book. It was, or? Uh, it's, no, it's probably been out for a, a while, but again, nobody's, yeah, nobody no knows about him. Um, man, I'm, what, what's the name of that one? It is called, I think it's just called George Marshall or nice. George C. Marshall. It's super simple. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, this is a really good question. Like, read a lot i mean anatomy trains was like an early one that like just got me super Change hungry your... about about a lot of things um i'm reading a really good book right now called the autobiography of a yogi which is that's a totally different spin that's that's super deep um man honestly like there i cannot say there's just one book even yeah, no, I just, we put spot. That's yeah. good. No, yeah. no, that's well, all right. George Marshall, yeah. that was a really yeah. good one. Yeah. I've never heard of that one. So. See, wild card book. That was yeah, great. Yeah, I love it. I love um, it. But yeah, I've always got about two to three hard copy books going, and then I've got an autobiography going. So, uh, Are you yeah, good about finishing the books you start? Oh, I usually, like, I'll get, like, to a certain point, and then I'll put it down, and then I'll be on to something else, and then I'll come back to it. Uh, I got another one for you, by the way. Uh, this has just been the last... So I want to say it came out in 2017. It's called the Athlete Athletic Skills Model, um, and it's from this guy. He is he was a strength coach for IX for a long time, and just like a really good athlete development book, um, like just a really well like well rounded uh, program. And they do a lot of things in the Netherlands, and I think they'll make their ways into the states. But they're doing some really cool things. Cool, nice, beautiful, different. All right, guys. Hope you took away some. Uh, some maybe we encourage you a little bit to look at breath a little <laughs> bit more. Uh, start looking into it. Maybe start with some of your difficult patients on breath. I think yeah. is, is yeah, one thing that I've really that's taken a good away. Message. And uh, 
I think one thing I took away from you too is like, don't be afraid to uh, get away from the side of pain, but keep your audits around there. And you know, if you're you're changing the foot to affect the shoulder, you're not crazy. Uh, just <laughs> actually look at the audits first, and then you know you'll be surprised what kind of changes you make. So, yeah, that was good. Beautiful. Uh, uh, how do they get up, people get a hold of you if they want to? Uh, I'm on what, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I mean, you can email me, Andrew at continuumhp.com. I'm might take a couple of days, but I'll get back for sure. Nice. Just like that. That's one thing. Like if I was going to say just to young, like practitioners and whomever, like, and uh, we talked about it, having a Rolodex, but it's just putting yourself out there, wanting to learn from people. And like, usually people in the field, like they want to talk about these things. Like we get yeah. excited to have mm -hmm. these conversations. So like, don't be afraid to reach out. And like, that's how you start building relationships. And, and I've gotten so many ideas and there's so many like, directions I've gone just because of like meeting with people and, and them talking about something like, Oh man, I need to take a look at this. Yeah. Um, and like, that's, that, that's changed my career. Um, and it, again, that's beyond like the book stuff. Like I love, again, I, yeah, I love to read, but relationships, man, like getting to know people and like, it's the face to face stuff that starts to change things. Makes the world go around. Beautiful. All right, guys, good luck with patience. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.